another episode of connect and move radio i'm your host andy fortuna and today's episode we're going to be talking about the integration of sensory and proprioception into rehab today's guest is dr james spencer he's based in south florida dr james spencer is a south or sorry sports performance chiropractor certified athlete trainer and fellow of the international academy of medical acupuncture he has formal training in a variety of manual therapy techniques like uh, active release techniques and grasping technique, along with movement certification and trainings like Mike Boyle Certified Functional Strength Coach and the uh, Onnit Academy of Unconventional Training. Dr. James Spencer, welcome to the show, bud. Andy, thanks for having me, man. Of course, of course. I mean, talk to us how you got to where you're at. How did you go into, I guess, uh, first athletic training and then you went into the chiropractic realm? Talk to us about your story. Yeah, sure. So uh, going into kind of school in general, I was uh, actually pre-dental for a while. Um, my cousin's a dentist. I shadowed hmm. him, and I realized very quickly that was not for me. And so kind of looking at the tracks of health, exercise science, and uh, sports medicine, I looked for kind of further into that and realized that athletic training was more of the route that I'd like to go. Mm-hmm. And when I was at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville Beach, um, I worked with the basketball and baseball teams there and really learned about A, movement prep, mm. and B, recovery. So that was something as far as you kind of, the modern medicine or uh, kind of the athletic training side of things was more based around that. And as I learned quickly about chiropractic and what that could do for sports performance, I was curious how I could blend the two together. Mm-hmm. And I was really doing an internship um, up at the Jacksonville Jaguars, and we had some time to chat with the team Cairo. And I, re- I really learned that, hey, this could be not only a preventative side of things, but it could also be performance enhancing. And so as I was getting closer to graduation, I was the only kid in the, the athletic training class going to chiropractic school. Hmm. And that was very unique as well. You know, that's something different when most people are going to PT school or actually just yeah. doing an ATC. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the Kairos get the bad rap of being quacks and whatnot, that's kind of the jokes that I would get. But I really didn't care because I knew how I would implement that into sports medicine or sports performance. And so going through chiropractic school, I was exposed to a lot of stuff there as far as the rugby team and some manual therapy techniques and dry needling. And um, that's really what I learned to do as far as creating a niche and doing something different, don't follow the status quo. And really sports medicine is where I just started jumping down because there's not a lot of chiropractors slash athletic trainers. You know, there's a lot of ATCs and PTs, but not a lot of chiros, ATCs. And so that was something that having that previous knowledge really helped expedite not only going through school, but uh, teaching others. And it, that's really what allowed me to get exposure to a lot of the rugby guys and, and learn about the sport of rugby and performance. And a lot of those guys are barefoot, which was very eye-opening to me. We had a lot of South Africans, um, a lot of Australians, guys from New Zealand. And that was something that was I just observed. And concurrently at the same time, I was doing a lot of slacklining and balance training. Mm-hmm. And the head coach at the time, who was also the USA team, uh, coach he he was just watching us from afar and he would just come over and ask questions about balance training and how that could be whether it's a preventative medicine or a performance enhancer 
And I really like learned a lot from teaching myself a how to slackline because a quick observation that I learned is it was very neural and it was very, very, very critical thinking. Hmm. So having those two implemented into sports performance, that helped me learn a how to balance better, b how to how to think on the fly, which is a lot of sports in general. Mm-hmm. So and and being able to converse this with with high end athletes, a lot of the guys from from our rugby team were on the World Cup team. So how how do we implement that with with these guys just directly right there at school? And then taking that further. Um, I went out to San Diego and did an internship out there. And at that time, it was split dual between a, a PT and a chiro. So it was really a physical therapy practice. And we implemented chiropractic within that. And we started to get some pretty good results. And, and I think that really raised some eyebrows to other people saying, okay, what are you guys doing and how can we do that? Mm-hmm. So exposure to a lot of pro athletes out there, we started to expedite the healing process and performance enhancement, injury prevention. And what I really observed was that a lot of the guys that we trained would walk around barefoot, whether they were on the beach or at home. And Mm. that, again, started to raise some eyebrows for me with how could that help balance? How could that help proprioception? Um, If we're wearing gloves on our hands every single day, there's terrible input to the hand. Well, think about that like the foot, right? So if we have a sock on or let alone a shoe, now that input to the foot is way less. Mm-hmm. And from any diagram or model, we know that there's a lot of input to those two areas. So kind of getting back to the roots of that, I, I started looking and talking to a lot more of the rugby guys that I'd worked with, and, and a lot of them were raised barefoot. And that, again, another observation. So the whole time I'm just taking notes and, and making observations through a lot of different sports and a lot of different athletes. And we know as, as, as you get the foot stronger, that's only going to concurrently help the hip extension or help glute activation. You know, and then as I started learning more and more about Greg Cook and Mike Boyle and the joint by joint approach, this is where I really started to put all the puzzle pieces together and learn, okay, this is actually going to be a preventative measure and give better triple extension. Mm-hmm. So from there, I moved to Houston. Um, uh, when I worked there, I was working with a lot of the Texans and the Rockets just because of who we were, you know, kind of working with. And um, the two guys that I had worked with there were also doing dry needling. And that's where a lot of my uh, exposure to dry needling really helped show performance enhancement, injury prevention, tissue quality. Um, mm-hmm. How can we get pain, people out of pain very quickly? And concurrently using that modality and a lot of the barefoot training at the same time, I started to see very, very good results. People got out of pain quicker. Um, their feet didn't hurt as much, less plantar fasciitis. And that exposure, just again, I'm taking notes the whole time and observing. And as I moved to Florida, I was actually going to move to Australia. And wow. when I was in Houston, I... I got my working holiday visa approved and I was going to move out to uh, Queensland and work with a few pro rugby teams out there. And then uh, some things happened to where eventually I just decided to move back to Florida, kind of where I was based out of. And and I I moved to the East coast and that's where a lot of my uh, movement experience and kind of natural movement and barefoot movement and, and sensory input to the feet really started to work on myself and learn from my experiences and how can I help others with my education and my experiences. And 
that's where I learned a little bit um, about Mike Boyle's article and and Anna Hartman talking about walking on uh, up pebbles and stuff like that will create a, a reactive stability to the lumbar multifidus. And so a lot of her conversations were coming from Philip Beach. So I started looking at a lot of his information and a lot of his books and researching that and, you know, concurrent the barefoot training. I, I looked with that, the Philip Beach research, a lot of the movement experiences, and that's where I really got into barefoot training and balance training. So, I mean, go ahead. How the heck did the rugby players play barefoot? <laughs> a lot of them didn't play barefoot, but they trained barefoot. Um, so from that like training, like in the like strength training, or actually on the field barefoot. Both, both sprinting and and strength training. Now contact, they obviously would be wearing some shoes, but um, in general, a lot of them would would barefoot train. And mm. I, again, I just sat back and observed. I didn't really ask questions at the time. I was just watching different guys from different areas training differently, different educations. And that's something that really helped me learn from different walks of life, you know, different locations and, and different cultures. I think you say something, not that I think, but I think uh, one of the, you, you mentioned a lot several times, I just sat back and watched and observed, watch and observe. I think as a practitioner, uh, we tend to, almost put in our biases sometimes way too early or just start to judge what that other person is doing way too early. I mean, a lot of times if somebody's doing something, it's probably worked for somebody that they know or for them uh, at one point or another. But I think you can learn a lot just by watching, right? Before you even judge. And, and again, you said watch and observe a few times. And, uh, and, I, and I tend to do the same thing. Like I tend to watch people, uh, whether it's an actual patient I'm looking at or a coach doing something or uh, again, anything you see anywhere, even in a, in a course or something like that, you can tell, you can learn a lot just by looking at someone, how they either approach a certain situation or approach their training or how somebody approaches their patient or, or, or um, athlete and how they, they implement certain things. Uh, and, and I wanted to say that because I think a lot of times, you know, somebody would hear uh, a player training barefoot and they say, oh my God, that's not right. You're not supposed to do that. Yada yada yada. But you just sat back and kind of absorbed and 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 just uh, and uh, gave time for you to see their perspective. Which you know, at the end of the day, it really opened you up to a couple other things that you could have or started to implement. Well, and I two things on that results speak, right? So I, I just witnessed a lot of these guys just really excel at at, at the at their sport and, and performance, mm-hmm. and and. A lot of them were never injured, which was very interesting, you know. Mm. Um, and then going back to that point of observation, I, I really have to give a lot of credit to Stu McGill on that. I took a course up in St. Louis with him um, mm. when I was in chiropractic school, and he told the story of, you know, that the, the actual observation starts when a person either gets up out of the chair or walks in from their car, and he's like, "That's when the exam really starts." And Hmm. he was telling the story of when he was consulting for, I think it was a medical doctor and there was probably 30 or 40 different clinicians in there, whether they were neurosurgeons or orthos. And they said, okay, let's go ahead. Let's, uh, let's have the patient come in. And he just kind of thought to himself, come in. He's like, no, let's go get them. And so he was the only clinician that actually walked to the door and, and had the patients, you know, stand up and walk into the office. And he said he could tell it was a posterior lateral disc just by the way they stood up out of the chair. Mm. 
And he, he walked in and said to the clinicians, he's like, it's a posterior lateral disc issue. And they all said, how the hell do you know that? And he's like, I've seen it before. I've seen people get up out of the chair. And just observing that, you know, enough times with his experience and, and his credentials, he's like, you know, it was clear as day to him. But these guys couldn't believe that he figured it out just by that observation. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, he went through his clinical exam to confirm that. But he's like, you know, just right out of the gate, he could see that. And that was something that I always took away. Like, just watching a person get in and out of their car or in and out of their seat is going to tell you a lot about what's going on. Yeah, you get a lot of valuable information before you even do any special tests, or orthopedic exams or anything like that. Um, and I and I relate that to, so right now I'm studying acupuncture and oriental medicine. And I mean, just the, the just that medicine is based on observation, on observation, on the natural uh, tendencies of nature, and then how that correlates to the body and human, uh, basically human uh, uh, pathologies and all that. Uh, But what I started seeing is is that the more, the more you tend to not only listen or not only watch and observe, but listen to, to patients, right? You, You start to kind of develop, um, kind of like the same example you gave with Stuart McGill is you start to now almost identify what the problem is before you even put their hands on them. And again, you do, uh, again, you do the uh, test and all that to kind of uh, rule out certain things, but to most of the time it's almost to confirm at that point um, what you're thinking. Obviously that comes with experience and putting reps in and stuff like that and seeing patients. But um, I put a big value and always tell students and, um, even those that I, that I speak to that listening and observing when it comes to uh, treatment or I should say assessment even before treatment is big. So um, I'm really glad you said that. Now, on, on that end, how do you when it comes to before you start integrating this uh, proprioceptive and sensory uh, input into your rehab using the pebbles and uh, the balanced beams and the and the, basically any modalities you have to be able to prescribe those things what are some things that you look for what's the assessment look like well again i look at previous experiences and people smarter than me dan john so um i was at a perform better summit in uh actually in fort lauderdale and he was telling the story of he's like listen you know at 60 years old you're more likely to die from a slip and fall than you are from cancer so he said my warm-up for every person is let me teach you how to get on and off the ground and that was, you know, very interesting as an observation. Again, he makes it more fun and makes it a little bit more comical where people are now getting their heart rates up. They're laughing. They're having a good time with it, right? And that's, right. that's his warm-up for a lot of people because if he can teach them that, he may prevent them from going to a nursing home or, or even dying from a hip fracture, right? Hmm. So <clears throat> with him, I asked a lot of questions like, why do we want people to get on and off the ground? Why do we... Why do we have to have input to the feet, right? And I just watch and read a lot about older people, people that are smarter than me. What are they doing and how are they doing things? And another interview with a 104-year-old man, they asked him, you know, what's one thing that you'd like to pass on to the younger generation? And he said, keep your feet soft, hmm. which is pretty deep, right? Like most people's feet, if, especially a geriatric or something like that, they're going to be stiff, rigid, cracking. And, and lack of blood flow. Like, we can just feel how cold the feet are. Mm-hmm. And when he said, keep your feet soft, so what he meant by that is physically, like, keep them soft. And he would wear um, lotion on top of his feet with socks every night to bed. 
And if the feet stay soft and the skin stays soft, the input to them is going to be better. Shock absorption is going to be better. Propulsion is going to be better. But if they get stiff and rigid, what happens? It beats up the joints north of them. So now the ankles don't dorsiflex. Now they're you know, giving me the pigeon walk. Mm-hmm. You know? And then next thing you know, we got stiff legs, stiff hips. We're getting hip replacements. So from that standpoint, if we can keep the joints moving in the foot for shock absorption and propulsion, now we're going to be at an advantage. Now sensory input's better. Now we're less likely to have a slip and fall injury. And so from that standpoint, I really looked and I said, well, if we can teach from a neuroplasticity standpoint to the younger population sensory input now, it's only going to benefit them in performance enhancement and behoove them to do it for the rest of their life because it's only going to help them when they're 60, 70, 80, 90. I mean, shit, they may be living to 100 years old nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know? So that was something for me from a selfish standpoint. I said, I personally need to do this and, and, and I need to spread the word because if we can prevent falls now, we're going to prevent them when they're 60. Mm-hmm. But if they're stiff and rigid, and, and I, I think, I forget who did it. Maybe it was a... Uh, my buddy Urban Barefoot down there in Miami, but he posted a picture of LeBron James's feet. And to see the toe deformities and the valgus deformities to the first ray and stuff like that, like, yeah, he may be a phenomenal basketball player, but at some point that's going to catch up to him. Mm-hmm. And, and to see that now, and if we can prevent that with toe spreaders or, or just even teaching people how to control their toes, now we're going to help people prolonged. So um, from a movement assessment standpoint, I'm uh, 100% uh, an FMS, SFMA guy. Um, I take the joint-by-joint approach as in the first toe, big toe, should Mm -hmm. move. The foot should be stable. The ankle should be mobile. The knee should be stable. The hip should be mobile, and so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. when I evaluate somebody, if I don't see that prerequisite, then I know that's the area that I need to attack, not only from a shock absorption standpoint, but for, again, from a propulsion standpoint. So something that I learned in, in chiropractic school was literally functional halysis limitus. And it, it, is this a preventative measure? And, and if it is, can we fix it? Now, if it's a structural limitation, that's a different point, you know, but if we're just getting some deformities or some valgus deformities to the first toe, well, that tells me a lot about hip extension. Mm-hmm. And that also tells me, okay, what do I need to address from a rehab standpoint? But what also, what do I need to address from a manual therapy standpoint? Do I need to mobilize the joint? Do I need to mobilize the tissue around it? So that's truthfully where I start is, is bottom up. And what I find is most people don't have a good moving big toe. Mm-hmm. And this was something, this was an article I wrote for, uh, for Eric Cressy in 2016, uh, big toe, big problems. Like, what we typically find is if there is a valgus deformity, there's a lack of hip extension. Well, if we can efficiency or if we can improve efficiency to the joint, well, that's only going to help you make become quicker. That's going to help your first step. If you're an outfielder, you know, that may help you as, as far as a, Hey, I need to sprint to second base and get the steal. And if we can improve that, that's what we do with pro athletes. We improve the one per 1%, right? So these are things that, you know, I evaluate and I really look for as far as compensations, can we improve the joint efficiency? So that's the area that I really tend to address and look at. And, you know, again, with the SFMA, we look at balance, single leg stance. 
Can they even stand on one leg with eyes open, eyes closed? Um, and that's really where my evaluation comes from. Once you get into the assessment, you realize uh, if it's a big toe problem, if it's a mobility or stability problem, uh, soft tissue quality, let's say now you want to start to integrate the proprioceptive and the sensory side to things. Um, how do you go about integrating the pebbles and everything else that you kind of work with when it comes to uh, the proprioceptive and the sensory sides? It's like anything, it's, it's, it's proper dosing, right? So if, if somebody has never been barefoot in 15, 20 years, I got to be careful what I do to them. Hmm. You know, foot's going to be super sensitive from a treatment standpoint. I'll start to stimulate the bottom of the foot just from a manual therapy standpoint. You know, and if you look at a lot of Yonda's stuff, a lot of Yonda's somatosensory input is, is vibratory percussions to the bottom of the foot, the SI joints, and then the base of the skull because there's most mechanoreceptors there. Hmm. So that's another way to start the stimulation, actually, to activate it before I even get you on the mats. And so what I do is that's from a manual therapy rehab standpoint, that's what I start with. And if they can tolerate that effectively without any soreness or discomfort, then we move pretty progressive. And we'll start on really what I went to do is I just bought different mats with different stimulations, different patterns, different rigidity to the bottom of it. And we start least aggressive and work our way to most aggressive. So in my office, I have two doormats. One's pretty gnarly. One's pretty mellow and we start on the mellow one work to gnarly and then we go from that to rocks river rocks and from river rocks i introduce some sod grass from sod grass i introduce siesta key beach sand which is also 99.9 percent quartz so there's mm-hmm. a lot of healing properties from the earth and grounding standpoint on that as well and mm-hmm. then from there i go to a dual um, reflexology mat which is probably the most aggressive and I literally just dose people appropriately. If they can handle that and there's no problem, let's, okay, we'll start with single leg reach or single leg balance and we'll progress that. Make sure that they're just getting good input or, or different proprioception and sensory input. And, and from a movement variability standpoint, think about like block versus random practice. Mm-hmm. Like, like we know the guys that are shooting around the three point line versus the free throw line are gonna be a better free throw shooter. So they need different variabilities, different stimulations. And again, from the earthing or grounding standpoint, now if they have pain, this is only going to help expedite the healing process of that. Do you create the the actual, I remember seeing uh, one of your posts where you had like little tubs full of the sand and the pebbles, those are stuff that you created, that you built yourself? Correct, yep. <clears throat> so I truthfully just went to Target. I think it was like five bucks <laughs> for a, a boot mat, like um, a snow boot mat. And where I grew up, we always had one of those kind of outside the door coming off the beach. If your feet were, you know, sandy, you just put your feet in a little water mat right there and then knock it off and then walk in the house. And Mm -hmm. so even that, like having water in there, if I could, it'd be ideal. I just don't want to spill it, but that's another form of input to to the feet. So I took that idea, I ran with it. And, you know, again, learning from Mike Boyle and Anna Hartman, I said, okay, well, I don't need rocks on a, a two by four. I just need rocks and a boot mat that people can get different stimulation from. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I, I did the whole, I wrote a, an article for my buddy, Mike Jones on sponsor go. And, um, it was barefoot bonus. And what we talked about is a little bit of the different stimulation to the feet for board sport athletes. 
And mm-hmm. what we've seen with a lot of the skimboarders and wakeboarders and snowboarders that we've worked with is that the better stimulation we get to the foot, the better off they do. Hmm. So that's really where a lot of our, our background and a lot of our experiences have paid forward to the stimulation of bare feet, not only from a strength standpoint, but again, shock absorption and better propulsion. What I started to notice too, as I started to um, implement stuff like this, where I've, I've taken the FRC courses, um, and again, it's just going around now, right? Big toe mobility, and uh, like you said, the the excitation of hip extension, just the neural side to um, working with the foot. Um, one, you start to realize the more you start to implement this with patients and clients is one. There's a lot of people walking around in coffins, right? That they they just they have no idea from the ankle down how to even move, right? And and I started noticing this with myself where I would literally sit on the toilet. It might be too much information for the listeners, but Never. sit on the toilet. And usually that's where I get most of my uh, toe exercises going, right? It's just like, oh, let me see what I can do today. <laughs> and what I started noticing when I started working with patients, especially low back pain, is they had very hard time distinguishing First of all, how to even distinguish toes, right? They usually start to use their toes and their hands are fine because of the integration between hands and, and feet, but um, is the the inability to move, right? And then to disassociate it. But the cool thing is once we started doing more of that, right? Depending on the age, because if it was an older person, it got a little, you know, it was a little hard to do it, but sure. they started to learn. But the learning aspect of it, right? And and the, the body's ability to now adapt to that and then how it integrated and made it easier as far as if you use corrective exercise or performance stuff or whatever exercise you wanted to integrate. But um, it made it easier. It made it easier. But I did find that a lot of people had a really hard time um, implementing it and just doing the exercise. And then some people have never done before and, and were uh, a little easier, uh, almost like pros at it. Did you, do, do you find that, that depending on the person that like really get it, no matter how many times or if, there's, if it's their first time? Yeah. So not to call my wife out, but she is, she, honestly, she's got phenomenal toe control. Okay. I think a lot of that stems from asynchronized swimming and ballet. Hmm. She grew up doing both. And, and a lot of that is just toe control, plantar flexion, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I don't find that a lot of people can control their toes very well, especially if they've had a previous ankle sprain. Right. So some sort of dorsiflexion compromise or toe extension compromise is usually associated with that. And we also know concurrently, if you have an ankle sprain, typically we find that that, that same side hip stability or hip extension is compromised. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's a lot of the regional interdependence conversations that a lot of the FMS guys, Greg Cook, have. And even Charlie Weingroff says that. He's like, a lot of times when we find a foot that has an issue, it's a hip problem. Hmm. And, and or vice versa, like the hip needs to be strong and stable. But if the foot has no lever to push off of, it's like shooting a cannon off a rocket or a, a, a cannon off of a, a rocket, right? Like the boat has nothing stable to push off of. So if you don't have anything stable to push into the ground, how can the hip get true force? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really what we look at is if, if there's a collapse of the foot, well, maybe that's adaptive. Maybe that's helped them become a better sprinter. But teaching them awareness to the toes 
And that's a lot of like the Z Health stuff, if you're familiar with that. A lot of the old school Z Health stuff was teach individual input to each toe and control mm-hmm. them. Because if you can't, you can't control the foot. And that's that goes for the hand too. If, if the fingers can't independently move, you can't truly control the hand. Hmm. And that was where we learned a lot of just long-term neural input to the fingers itself is only going to help the joint capsule. That's only going to help the input to the brain. And if we can preserve those joints and the mobility we have, just as FRC has done, now long-term health of the joint is going to be better off. We're going to reduce hip replacements. We're going to reduce pain. And now people are going to live longer and, and physically move better. What's your what's your take on uh, minimalist shoes? You know, it's interesting. I used to use the the Vibram Five Fingers when I was in Cairo school. Obviously, it's like a big buzz kind of. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've pretty much read every Barefoot book, Barefoot Boston, um, you know, Born to Run, those sort of things. I think it has its place, but again, it's proper dosing. Like, yeah. Even right now, as we have in this podcast, I'm wearing New Balance Minimus. And I think having that wide toe box is only going to be beneficial for overall um, surface area stability and Mm -hmm. having the toes spread out. Because if I start to compromise my toe box, we know what that does to the first toe. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm a huge fan of it. Um, I even wear Vivos as far as like when I get dressed up and Vivo barefoot shoes are awesome. They have a wider toe box, look great, last long and, and, I'm always for it. I don't know if people can handle the proper dosing, though. It's just like orthotics. Like, we need to give those the proper dosing as well if people are going to run. You don't just go run two miles in a brand-new pair of orthotics, just like, Mm -hmm. you know, a brand-new pair of minimus shoes or any kind of barefoot-style shoes. But I think more people need to actually start implementing that into their, um, their shoe regiment as well as barefoot training. And I think they'd be surprised at the, the health benefits of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I started wearing uh, zero shoes. Uh, I've actually completed a full year now. And what, in June or something like that? Okay. They're beat up. Yeah. But that's 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 besides the story. Um, but what I started noticing is one dosage, 100%. Like, I even went into this. I was like, okay, I know I for sure um, can just start wearing it and... Cause I had uh, patients come in and like, Oh, you know, I just got these uh, Vibrams or I just got a Vivo and I'm wearing it every day. I'm like, terrible. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, three days later, like, Oh, my feet or, you know, my knees, my ankles. Like, well, just like anything, there's a balance. You can't just go 15, 25, 30 years um, with compensations and foot stuff. And all of a sudden you throw yourself into a fire and expect for yourself to be able to handle it. Right. right? Um, there is prerequisites to be able to do that. Are there certain people that are inclined or, or uh, better suited, even though they don't necessarily have the the practice in a sense? Sure, right? You can say that for anything. But um, yeah, I, I agree. The, the wider toe box, definitely. I love that feel to it. Um, but even then, I, I took the time. It took me maybe, I want to say about a month. Mm-hmm. I did a few days working with them and you know in the clinic so I can use it. I'm always on my feet. And I started slowly using them for kind of strength training, low impact stuff. And then slowly then started doing some uh, high intensity stuff and then running and then three miles, four miles. Um, really, I wanted to test it running because I'm not too much of a runner. Uh, actually, not, I don't really run that much, but um, I, wanted to, I wanted to test it. I wanted to test, first of all, me being an inexperienced runner and then 
going into barefoot, I think was kind of the, the best terrible decision, right? Because most people, they're going to try to do that. They're going to try to, they see the, the research and the, the buzz of uh, minimal shoes. Oh, if I want to improve feet health and all this stuff and I want to perform better, I got to run on minimal shoes. But the thing is what, what we're talking about here is that dosage side is, is slowly implementing yourself into it and then using it maybe, you know, 80% of the time and then weaning off and just, you know, that's all you use. But I think, the, you know, the most important thing you said was the dosage side is super important. Well, you know, uh, I'm going to say two things to that. If you're on your feet for 8, 12 hours a day, like that's a long time. And, and mm-hmm. for most people, they can't handle the minimus shoes. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something actually Eric Cressy and I have talked about. Like, I'll wear the Cloud Hopper New Balance if I'm going to be on my feet for 12 hours. Right. But at this point, I, I've been doing this for almost 10 years now that I can wear a New Balance Minimus all day and have no problem. Like, my foot is that strong and that, uh, that adaptive. Mm-hmm. But this is something that I work at. Just like trying to speak Spanish, I'm going on year 10, but I don't give it the amount of credit that I need to like I do my feet. And that's just the reality. If I want to be fluent in Spanish, I need to give it more time. Right. right? And, and same thing with dosage. It's the same thing. The feet need to talk the language, but if we're bombarding it too much, you're going to get confused. The feet are going to get sore. They're going to hurt. You're going to get pissed. And that's our job as clinicians is, is to prevent that and give them the proper dosage. Talk to me about uh, kettlebell training and how you use it into uh, your rehab. Well, I mean, as the the bearded kettlebell, I mean, that's kind of my go-to implement. I've made a lot of money and a lot of good friends off of just that logo itself. And Hmm. I think the first go-to movement that I I use is probably the Turkish kettlebell. You know, that's, that's something again, to teach people how to get on and off the floor, um, how to prevent injuries. If they do fall, here's a, here's a, an exercise that you've done a thousand times with or without load. And now, mm-hmm. now the brain is learning how to get up and off the ground. Right. And it doesn't matter how old we are. We're going to have to know how to do that. So, um, from a kettlebell standpoint, it doesn't matter what you're there for. As far as injury, more than likely at some point you're going to learn about them or touch them. Mm-hmm. And it's something that has changed my life and I, I guarantee is going to change other people's um, from a one tool implement. You can get strong as shit. You can produce power and, and honestly, functionality. Like you can flip it, you can press it, you can swing it. Um, and just doing it appropriately teaches the body to get into proper positions where we can leverage the joints optimally. Mm-hmm. And as I've implemented these tools throughout, you know, 15 years of sports medicine, I, I've just seen the results there speak for themselves. And, and truthfully, it doesn't matter what pro athlete or what pro team I consult for, they're all using them. You know, like Jeff Fish back in the day for the Atlanta Falcons, he was using the kettlebell as a conditioning tool. Hmm. Now, some people are using it for force production and strength, but he was actually using it as a conditioning tool. So, and if you read any of Pavel's stuff, it was like a rites of passage for a lot of the Russians as far as pressing a certain kilo. 
that hmm. was how you got to adulthood, you know, back, back in the Russian days. And so to see that, I also appreciated that because you couldn't compromise form for weight. Yeah. It was, you know, if you look at the kettlebell system, I think they only go up every four kilos, depending on really like if you look at the RTC or strong first stuff. And that was, there was, that was for a reason because then you mastered the movement to progress to the next weight. You mm-hmm. didn't throw on two and a halfs on each side just to get five extra pounds. And that was something that I really gravitated to and I appreciated from a movement standpoint and a rehab standpoint. So um, a lot of times when, you know, this is the CrossFit Games week, but when I worked with CrossFitters, they just wouldn't understand. They were all stronger than me as far as Olympic lifts. And the minute I asked them to do a Turkish get-up, they'd grab like 35 pounds. And they'd struggle with it. And that was very eye-opening. And I'm like, well, shit, go grab the 115 over there. Let's, let's, let me show you how to do this. Mm-hmm. And when they were bigger and stronger than I was, but I could do a stronger Turkish get-up like five times what they could do, they finally just shut up and listened to me. You know, and that was awesome because now we're getting results. Like I had a guy ah, four years ago or so um, go into the CrossFit Games in between regionals and the Games. Um, I believe it was like a labrum tear. And mm-hmm. the amount of volume that he was trying to, to lift at as far as practice, I said, this isn't realistic if you're trying to compete in the Games. I said, please trust the process. Let's go through this. And we implemented a lot of kettlebell and unconventional training tools. And the reality is he PR two lifts at the games mm-hmm. and it was eye opening to him as a coach programming for other people going, okay, I didn't do as much volume. I got stronger and my shoulder didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and to see that result was enough to spread the word, not only through a little bit of the community here locally, but also at his gym as a coach. And mm-hmm. that for me was just, you know, the kind of the icing on the cake, confirming everything that I'm doing. I'm going, yes, you know, from that standpoint, kettlebells are beneficial from a rehab and performance standpoint. I mean, I think as a, as a tool, it's one of my favorite tools for sure, right? You get to, like you mentioned, you can do basically any movement and any progression from uh, pain all the way to performance uh, using a kettlebell. Um, to be able to now stimulate the body uh, in certain movements, um, ways that you couldn't really do other with any other modality. Um, but uh, to to your example with that athlete, I think efficiency. A lot of people take um, result or should I say load over efficiency. But what most people don't understand is that I wouldn't say most people, but a good amount of people, what they don't understand is when you're efficient with movement and how you're handling uh, a, a certain movement, a certain load, um, has a lot to do with it. And it's, it's almost, I would say, more important than the actual load that you're, that you're actually lifting. Because like and for the example that you gave, like there's, these people were super strong, right? Super athletic and most probably almost all CrossFit uh, type of lifts. But then when you ran them through uh, this Turkish getup, which now involved multi-planar type of movement and uh, really force production that they haven't been used to, basically you blew them out the water. Um, and it took that to open their eyes. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's That's a good story. Honestly, that was, that was like my... My go-to example is as far as if I really needed them to shut up and listen, that, that's how I would do it. And right. honestly, it's just gotten to the point now where I just don't work with the CrossFitters. <laughs> mm. 
when it comes to um, working with the youth, right? Working with, because um, I have seen a couple of your posts where you work with, I mean, a good a good amount of uh, variety of demographic. Do they have this approach to kettlebells and the proprioceptive and the sensory? Uh, do they, uh, are they open to that? You know, I'm going to give you a perfect example. This is a, a young kid I've been working with for the last uh, five years. He came to me at 5'8", when he was like twelve, he's five eight, mm-hmm. probably ninety pounds, and always injured. And it's like financing; like you, you can't just invest in one thing overnight. There's phases to financing and retirement, etc. Right? That's really mm-hmm. what I had to explain to his parents. Was phase one is just going to be we need to lay the foundation and get him out of. And, and again, from a sensory input or, or proprioceptive input, if I can give better in, information to the foot, that's only going to help the brain. And so that was from, from the get-go, in, in my opinion, and really where I would like him to make a stance in the industry is I think balance training is underlooked and it, it, needs, to be, it needs to be addressed because at what point is strong strong enough? I think strength is is vital and i think that needs to be the number one component in my opinion but we're not addressing balance enough we consider that a skill but that skill is what really keeps us upright what propels us forward and really what prevents us from from dying right and to Mm -hmm. address that as as far as a longevity standpoint that's implemented for me from day one and i can tell you every single patient i see their balance will improve whether we're looking at force plate distribution on, on, on sway velocities and, and really not to get too nerdy on it, but that's really, I mean, that's my evaluation. Stand on a force plate. Let's see what your sway velocity is. Does that improve? Does it get worse? And, and then I know not only single leg stance, but eyes open, eyes closed. What is the sway velocity of that? And that's where a lot of my sensory input and, and balance training is confirmed objectively. We can see that the, the sway velocity improves. Now I know the input to the foot is quicker. Now proprioception is better. Reactive stability is better. Core stability is better. It's more efficient. And if we mm-hmm. have that, whether it's a hit, again, a first step where you got to get over your shoulder to look for that fly ball over your, your right shoulder. Now you can hear the crack off the bat and, and reactions quicker. But, but if you're mm-hmm. slow on that first step, especially as a linebacker, now the running back's past you, right? And these are all things where a lot of the pro athletes that I see, they're asking me to get the 1% out of them. And this is where I find that the 1% is lacking in most of them. If they can't stand on one foot, well, how the hell are they walking out to their car? You know, mm. 80% of the gate cycles on one leg. Yeah. So from that standpoint, that's where I ask questions like they're strong, but can they stand on one leg? Hell no. So that's where I really start to squeeze one, 2% out of these, these guys, these, whether it's 14 year old athletes or, or pro athletes that are 19, 20, 25. So for this young kid that I'm referring to, he was five, eight, probably 90 pounds. And now he's six, seven, one seventy. And that kind of happened overnight. So for him, a lot of sensory input proprioception was vital, right? Couldn't touch his toes, could barely bend over past his knees. And 
I can truthfully say he's probably the most nimble, flexible, strong athlete that I train. It doesn't matter pro athlete or not. He's stronger than any of the guys I work with. He's huh. he's pressing 24 kilo kettlebells overhead and walking around. That's a lot of weight overhead. I don't, I don't, yeah, no, no big deal. I don't see a lot of my pro athletes doing that. And that's something that is very eye-opening to him, that he's only a junior in high school, and all of the records around are being broken just because, A, how strong he is, but how nimble he is and how his balance is through the roof. And, and the whole swim team that he works with is now just observing, going, whoa, the last three years, four years, this guy's been doing this, and he's pain-free? This is huge. You know, and it's, again, it's an education to the parents first and then to him second. And now that they're, now that they're awesome. buying in, it's, it's, again, reduce volume, reduce volume. He doesn't need to spend as much time in the pool. Let's work mm -hmm. on recovery and strength training. And as he gains almost 15 pounds every off season, I can't ask for much more. I guarantee there's going to be another growth spurt in the next year. He'll probably be 6'8", 190. And, and as a swimmer, that's pretty damn good size. <laughs> pretty good uh, wingspan yeah, there. Michael Phelps, baby. Jeez. Dr. James Spencer, how can the listeners uh, contact you? Do they want to work with you or ask, have any questions? What's a good way to contact you? Uh, honestly, Instagram is probably the best, best way. Uh, Dr. James Spencer. And uh, that's probably where if you DM me or anything like that, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'm busy as shit, but Listen, I want to help out the younger kids and, and do what's best for the community and, and really educate not only athletes, but younger clinicians like you and I, Andy. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and I'll make sure to listeners, you should be able to see that at the bottom of the show notes here. Um, you have a website, uh, James? Uh, yeah, it's again, drjamespencer.com. And, uh, okay. and again, the other thing I'd like to do is, is give a shout out to Media Zone. That's kind of the uh, new business venture I've been doing. Uh, we started okay. this rentable podcast studio up here on Singer Island. So, you know, as, as any of us know, content creation and education for the youth and, and other athletes is huge. So this is a platform to help not only get the word out for other people's businesses, but our own. Awesome. Awesome. Any book recommendations? Yes. Hacking Your Education. Hacking your education. That has 100% uh, changed my life. And just a quick synopsis on what that is. It's think of you being around a local school. Um, we'll just say mm -hmm. University of Miami, right? What's stopping you from going there and sitting in on classes? Hmm. Really nothing. Right? And the guy right. that wrote it, I believe, has a Harvard medical degree without the diploma. So, <laughs> and, and that's true. Like, I mean, we've all been in college classes there's 200 kids in an auditorium nobody's checking your student id and, right. and this is just ways like just reach out ask questions all people can do is say no and right and again that's really gotten me to where i'm at in my field today and, and really where i'm at in my personal and professional life is reach out to people that you may never think that would contact you or talk to you and they're going to help expedite your life mm-hmm Awesome. I mean, that's the name of the game of this podcast. So, <laughs> um, awesome. Now we're going to get into what I call speed round. It's just a couple of questions that I have here just to get to know you, Dr. James Spencer, a little bit more and the listeners to get to know you. Uh, they're funny and quirky uh, type of questions, but 
it's uh, it's all fun. Uh, so basically, I, I call it a speed round because you really only have a small amount of time to answer the question. Whatever comes to the top of your head is what you blurt out. Um, and then after that, it's uh, I give a couple thanks uh, for the podcast. So are you ready for a speed round? All right. So first question, what's your greatest fear? Uh, jumping off a cliff. Jumping off a cliff. So I'm assuming no slack lining uh, across the Grand Canyon. Not the Grand Canyon, but Mount Everest. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, next one. If you could eat one thing for the rest of your Sushi. life, what would it be? Really? What type? Uh, I am a spicy tuna guy. Really? Huh. So what's your go-to place? Uh, Sushi Joe's. Sushi Joe's. Joe. Okay. Um, next one. Do you put your socks on first or your pants, pants. on first? Pants. Interesting. And your favorite superhero and your favorite villain? Uh, favorite superhero would definitely be Captain Planet. Oh, wow. And, uh, I don't like villains. Nobody <laughs> does. So what's what's your, your most despised villain? Oh, man. I would, my son will kill me if I say this, but Ghidorah. Ebora? Kedora. What is that? Just Google it. Got it. And Captain Planet. Wow. I have asked this question plenty of times, and this is the first Captain Planet answer I've ever gotten. So uh, that's great. <laughs> uh, this last part uh, is basically what I call thanks, and it's really exactly what it is giving thanks. The first thank you, there's three of them, is to you, Dr. James Spencer, and for you taking the time to jump on this podcast. Uh, and just to learn more about your approach, learn about what you got going on and and your basically your investment into the profession. So I appreciate you jumping Thanks on. Thanks for having me, buddy. And honestly, I think we, we met probably, what, four or five years ago at this point. So it's uh, mm -hmm. always good to chat and see everybody doing their thing and, and, and really progressing in the field. Thank you. I appreciate that. Second thank you goes to the listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this episode. You could have been doing anything at this moment, maybe even watching a little episode of Captain Planet, but you happen to be on this episode listening to Dr. Jane Spencer spit out some valuable information. Um, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for your time and thank you for jumping on and uh, you know listening to this podcast. Third thank you goes to our clients, goes to our patients, our students, people that we get to work with on a day-to-day -day. Um, thank you for valuing our skills, valuing our approach, um, because again, we can have all the knowledge and all the passion in the world and there's no one to share it with. It really doesn't mean much. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it for giving us the opportunity to really share what we love to do. Uh, with that being said, this is Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support and see you on the next episode. Hold up.